You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. So, Mark chapter 7 is where we find ourselves. One of the plagues of our current culture, meaning the world that we live in right now, it's a current problem, but I think it's always been a problem. And it's that our world accepts mediocrity disguised as excellence. I think the world around us, if, if you stop and think about things, we accept mediocrity disguised as excellence. Stop and think about this for a second. Think about our culture, and our culture specifically in America is completely consumeristic, right? Most most things are gauged or judged uh, in terms of value by what you possess, right? Or what you can achieve. That's, those are the status symbols of our world, right? Possessions and power, those kinds of things. And yet possessions are a funny thing because things cost money, right? And, and things that are uh, uh, higher end, things that are uh, just sort of the best, they cost a lot of money. And so for us, because we judge certain possessions as having value, oftentimes you'll get imitations of the most excellent forms of things, but at a lower price, right? I remember as a kid, like certain toys, right? What were the, it was the Legos versus the Mega Blocks. Does anybody remember that? Like the Legos would have been like the name brand. And those are the ones that were just cool and they had all the neat designs and the sets. And like you'd go to Fred Meyer and walk down the aisle and be like, that's the one I want. And let's just say, you know, the, the Lego set was 20 bucks. The Mega Blocks set, the off brand, right? It was only 10 bucks. So, of course, mom and dad being frugal as they were, it was like, no, it's the exact same as the Legos. It's the same. No, you won't even be able to tell the difference. Except that when you got together with your friends who had Legos, like your mega blocks didn't fit with their Legos. You couldn't combine your sets. And so you're ostensibly at the point where you just, you can't play with them. It's like, no, they've got the good stuff and I've got the reject stuff over here that doesn't even fit together and doesn't have a cool whatever, right? But, but so often that's our response to things is this, this thinking that the mediocre thing the thing that's good enough will suffice us if we sort of shine it up and think, ah, oh, it'll be good enough if I make it look good. See, I think what we're going to see today in the scripture is Jesus opposing that mentality. So much of our study of scripture has to be Asking questions of ourselves, our expectations, our behaviors, the way that we view the world in comparison to how Jesus sees things and does things. And I think if you're like me at all in terms of studying the word and looking into scripture and looking at Jesus' life, when you observe Jesus for who he is, what he does, and how he does things, when you start to compare it to our world and even to us, our own expectations, we start realizing that we fall woefully short of who Jesus is. But as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, those who are called by God to believe in him for our salvation, but also for our current situation, to believe in Jesus, that what we are doing in this world matters, and that what we're doing has an impact on eternity, we look at Jesus as our model to say, no, that's what I'm shooting for, is to be like Christ. Christ. 
And what we'll see this morning is that Jesus is the top of the top. He's excellent. He's quite simply the best at everything. You know, it's a funny thing in our world. Again, we have a desire for the best, don't we? Like if we really, again, look at our culture, look again, look at advertising. If you look at advertising for things, what are the things that, that um, advertisers in trying to sell their products, what do they do to us? What do they try and call us to? You, you, simple phrases like, do you want more out of life, right? Then buy this product and this will give you what you need, right? Do you want more out of life? Are you being all that you can be? Speaking of the military, right? That used to be the army phrase, right? Be all that you can be, whatever the, the, the advertising phrase was. Still is. There it is. Okay? Be all that you can be. Now join the military because that's what's, that's what's going to get you there. Or the whole self-help movement that has really always been around but has become very, very prominent, right? Here's how you can achieve more with what you have. Here's how to get what you want out of life. And here's the real, here's the real secret. This, is, this has been around since the time of Jesus. It's called Gnosticism. Here's the information you really need. Like if you pay for my weekend seminar, if you pay for my book, if you pay for my course, if you listen to my podcast, you're going to get the information that you don't have right now that's going to take you to the next level. It's going to unlock hidden traits and hidden, hidden talents that you have, these kinds of things. See, our culture understands that we have wired into us a desire for excellence, why is that? Why do, why do we want the best of the best? I think it's because of who created us. You and I are created by an all-powerful and yet personal being, God, all-knowing, all-powerful. And, and because we were made in his image, there's this thing that I think is rooted in our DNA that looks around at the world and just goes, no, we, sh- we expect the best out of everything because God is perfect. And yet, we settle for mediocrity. We settle for things that are not the best of what God would have for us. And the truth is, even scripturally, mediocrity doesn't fly. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Timothy. He talks about like the suffering we're going to endure as followers of Jesus, but the fact that it brings about a reward, right? Specifically, he talks about how like an athlete, right? Only one person wins the gold crown, wins the prize, right? And that person like disciplined their body. He talks about it in Second or First Corinthians, but also Second Timothy, where like the, the athlete disciplines their body so that they can do what? Come in second? No. They discipline themselves. They work hard because they're going for number one. In our culture, we can see it. We elevate number one, right? The person who wins, the person who's in first place, that's the one who gets all the glory and all the honor. Now, our our culture also does the weird waffly thing where, like, now everybody gets a participation trophy, right? Like, just because you showed up, somehow you're awesome versus the person who actually put in the work to win. Whole different discussion. But... This, this fits in this concept of like seeking out the best and desiring what is most excellent. It fits in with several other themes in scripture that we have to be aware of. Number one, that you and I were created to worship. You and I, in the way that, that God formed us, we were created to worship. In fact, all of Revelation uh, chapter 4 onwards in those, in those first intermediate chapters and when we see the, the heavenly scene... 
it describes for us and shows in detail to us what eternity is going to look like, right? And this is where we make those jokes about like, you know, when you go to heaven, it's not floating up on a cloud playing a harp somewhere. Like that's not heaven, right? All of our life in terms of eternity is going to be spent worshiping God. Like that's what, our, what's what we're created for. That's why God created us. It's to worship him to acknowledge his perfection and his goodness and his excellence. And so if that's what we're created for is to worship, why would we worship anything that was subpar or less than excellent? We see this truth exemplified in the Old Testament. Mark down 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. Israel always at war with those Philistines, with those pagan nations, 1 Samuel chapter 5 says this, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, this is the Ark of the Covenant, Indiana Jones. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was their god. The Philistines had a pagan idol that was a god. He was half fish, half man. Okay, bless you. Verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I got to say it, Dagon it. So, verse 3, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. They, they propped him back up, right? So here's, here's the Philistines with their god, Dagon, the fish god, right? Half fish, half man. He's setting up in their little temple place. And they bring in the Ark of the Lord. This is the representation of the God of Israel. And they're like, great, we've got another God, right? Let's do multiples. And they bring in the Ark of the Covenant and they set it there next to Dagon, their God. Next morning they wake up, Dagon's face down in front of the Ark. They're like, oh shoot, our God fell down. And so they're like, prop him back up, put him back up. And so it says in verse three, so they took Dagon, put him back in his place. Verse four, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Here's the point. In comparison to God, in all of his perfection and excellence, why would we worship something less than that? Why would we worship something that we have to continually prop up, right? Shouldn't we desire to find and worship the most excellent thing? Shouldn't that be our desire and focus in terms of how God created us? Dagon, they're worshiping him. It's an idol they created, a God that they created, right? That's, that's like... like crazy because as soon as that idol being what it is gets into the presence of God boom it hits the ground it's face down before the ark of the Lord see you and I we we are guilty of creating idols and little gods for ourselves aren't we again in our world the things that we create idols out of that sort of define us and the things that we worship money we worship money. We worship possessions. We want more. We define our life by what we have. Is it the newest? Is it the shiniest? Is it the best? Right? But here's the crazy thing about money. Here's why money doesn't make a good God. 
Because the moment Russia goes to war with Ukraine, all of the organ public retirement accounts that were invested into Russian companies tanks. And all of a sudden, the money that we were trusting in for our retirement accounts tanks. And we don't have as much money anymore, right? Gas prices go up. We actually start seeing things that we've never experienced before, food shortages, things that used to be on the shelf in abundance are no longer there. And we're scratching our heads going, why is life so hard? While the rest of the world is like, catch up, America. We've been dealing with this for millennia. But that's why money makes a horrible, horrible God, because it comes and goes. We can't control that. Pleasure is another God that we create and that we idolize. I want to feel good. Whatever that means, I want to feel good. I want to experience pleasure for myself. Pleasure makes a horrible God. Why? Because sometimes we wake up and go, I don't feel good. Sometimes there's illness in our life. Sometimes there's conflict in in our life. Sometimes just the world stinks that day and we don't feel good. And so if pleasure is our God and it isn't perfect and it isn't always excellent, we have to find ourselves propping up our little God. And if we found pleasure in something at one point and then it failed us, we got to go find more pleasure or different pleasure if that's our God versus the God who is eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of creation. He is always perfect. He never fails. And so, so in, in contrast to what we might worship in the world and find it lacking and find it not being excellent, but at best mediocre in comparison to God, why wouldn't we look to Jesus and go, man, Jesus is the perfect one. He's the perfect one. Let's, let's worship him, right? But not just worship him, but I think there's a key for us today in terms of seeing, seeing how we're to worship him or rather why we're to worship him. I want you to take a look at Mark chapter 7. And there's two stories here of Jesus' interaction with two different people. But they define for us something that I think is important to be reminded of and encouraged in. And I want to start at the end. I want to start at the end. So Mark chapter 7, verse 37. Let's look at the conclusion to the story. Then we'll go back and find out why this was the conclusion. Mark 7, verse 37. and says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He, Jesus, has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus does all things well. That word well there, as often is the case when we try and translate from the original languages into English, it's a little bit of a challenge. It's not always one for one in terms of translation. But that word well can be described as beautiful. Jesus does all things beautifully or excellently or even, and here's the real thrust of it, Jesus does all things perfectly. This is what is being expressed by the people who see Jesus doing miracles. So let's go back and see the context of what Jesus is doing here. And if Jesus does all things well and beautifully and perfectly, there'll be two things that we'll take notice of here in this story. Number one, we're going to notice where Jesus does his ministry. 
where he does his ministry. And number two, we're going to notice who Jesus targets with his ministry. Those are the two things we're going to see today. So look at verse 24, Mark 7, 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now let's keep going on in verse 31. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephephatha, that is, be open, that's Aramaic. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The first thing we have to understand about this story. Jesus is a Jew. He's from the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And within God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, there are strict parameters, legalities, laws that have been set out for God's people to remain pure. And Jesus, being a Jew, is perfect in all points of the law. He has done everything that God has commanded his people. But one of the reasons that Jesus keeps having conflict with the religious leaders of the Jews is because Jesus understands God's law is far more than just a legal requirement, that there's a heart to the law. There's a purpose for why God gave his law to the nation of Israel, to keep them pure. And the thing is, is what we see Jesus doing here in excellence, with beauty, with perfection, doing all things well, the first thing we have to take notice of is where Jesus does his ministry. When it says that he went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, and then to the Decapolis, those descriptions of cities and that network of 10 cities, the Decapolis, this was a non-Jewish area. These were non-Jewish cities. These were pagan cities. This is where people who worshipped idols, not of the nation of Israel, lived and worked and had their life. And Jesus opens up and goes into these regions that Jews would have said, those are dogs, Those people are outside of the nation of Israel. They're outside of God's blessing and outside of God's law. And and by virtue of the fact that they're not Israel, we don't want to have anything to do with them. That would have been how the Jews had viewed the people from those regions. And yet what we see Jesus doing perfectly is going to those regions and opening up his arms wide 
and welcoming all who would come to him. He just flips the script on the religious leaders of that day, right? See, one of the traps that we have to, we have to be cautious about as the church in the same way that the nation of Israel made this mistake, we have to be cautious not to become too inwardly focused. As God's people who come together, are we supposed to come together and encourage one another? Yes. Are we just supposed to disciple one another? Yes. Are we supposed to worship together and, and serve one another? Yes and amen. All of those things are true. But one of the things that we have to avoid and fight tooth and nail is saying, we've found our group and that's it. We're going to put walls around our little group. Here's our little, here's our little us four and no more. We're happy with who we are. So let's just serve each other and that'll be the fulfillment of what God wants us to do. Rather than looking at Jesus and going, how uncomfortable must it have been to go to a place that had no connection to his religious background? Being willing to open up and to go to places that were probably really dirty, messy, inappropriate for a young Jewish man to enter into. Going to a place where, where he was able to speak truth and be seen in a way that people who were far away from the Lord were welcomed to come near. Jesus' example here is that he does everything well. It's, it's excellent and perfect, and he does this by reaching into new areas where his message was foreign. That's for you and for me to draw from this story, to pull out and go, do I just focus on being at church on Sundays and Wednesdays? Is that like, is that where I express my faith? Is that where I let other people know that I'm a Christian? Or do I go into other areas? Do I bring my faith? Do I bring Jesus and all of his perfection into other areas of my life? Like what we do with the other six days of the week, where we go to work, who we interact with, socially, professionally, personally, right? Are we going into all of those areas with the message of Jesus? Jesus in his perfection went to places that were perhaps uncomfortable and brought truth to those places. The second thing we have to see in terms of Jesus's perfection is not just where he does his ministry and doing that well in terms of where he's going, but who Jesus targets with his ministry. The Syrophoenician woman, the man who was deaf and couldn't speak from the Decapolis cities, People who are far from the Lord. Jesus is targeting those who are far from the Lord and he is welcoming them in. He is inviting them into the faith. And he is ministering to people who do not fall within the category of the carefully curated religious life that so many of us and so many in that day were sort of shining up our mediocrity. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I go to church on Sundays. Sometimes I even make it to Wednesday nights. But the rest of the week, everything else I'm willing to accept and do, it's not excellent. It's just sort of mm, mediocre at best in terms of my faith. Jesus, who is excellent, 
goes in and just opens his arms up and calls people to something that's so much bigger than and better than a simple set of religious rules or practices to follow that as long as we check those things off the list, then we're good. That's where the Pharisees were wrong. That's where the Pharisees were in conflict with Jesus like we studied Wednesday night. Like they knew the letter of the law, they knew chapter and verse, but their hearts were twisted and far from the Lord. They were mediocre at best in terms of their actual trust and faith in the God who had brought them out of captivity. And Jesus is now going to people who are going to see him do the work that he's doing, and they're going to see him and say, man, that guy does everything perfectly. I don't know anything about the religious rules. I don't know anything about the rituals. I don't know any of that kind of stuff. But what I know is that Jesus does all things well. He's perfect in everything that he does. See, Jesus' mission was to reach everyone, no matter what state they found themselves in, right? So true. We have to take that truth and, and grab onto it and go, that has to be our mission too. If, if the exclamation is that Jesus did all things well, he did all things perfectly, and Jesus went to places that didn't look like his religious upbringing, that's a lesson for us in terms of seeking out what is excellent in our life. If Jesus was interacting with people who were not religious, who were far from the Lord, who were, who were by perhaps church standards, dogs, people to be avoided, people to be looked down upon. If Jesus in all of his perfection is going to those people with the message of the kingdom of God, shouldn't we look in our desire for excellence to Jesus' example and say that's where we need to go to? That's who we need to be open to as well. See, one of the things that I really want to fight and be cautious about and be aware of, even as we grow and expand and God increases our opportunities in terms of, of where we, we have our services and our gatherings and all these kinds of things, I want to be far more concerned with how we interact with people and who it is that's coming than what our services look like. We should do all things well. We should do things to the best of our ability, but be far more concerned with the people who are coming to hear about this Jesus and be far more concerned with making sure that they're seeing the excellence of Jesus and not the excellence of our ritual or our performance or our gifts or talents or abilities. Because here, here's what I want you to take a look at. Again, at the end of that section of scripture, Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus, he, he's already uh, cast out the demon from the Syrophoenician's daughter, Right? And then he's healed this deaf man. I find it interesting that Jesus is trying to do all this stuff secretly, number one. He's trying, he's trying to be like on the down low with these things. That's an interesting study in and of itself. He's telling them, no, 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 it's not time. Don't, don't say anything about what I'm doing, right? And that accords with Jesus' whole ministry. It's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. And yet, because of who he is, there's no way to hold back this message of, this guy's amazing, He's like, he, got, he does everything well, right? So he heals this guy. The guy is able to speak now, all these things. In verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. In verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. See, the focus here isn't necessarily on the miracle. 
it's not on the thing that Jesus has done. It's mentioned, it's there, but the focus is on Jesus himself. <laughs> this guy does all things well. This guy is perfect. He is excellent. And the reason we know that is because he's healed these people, right? See, our focus should never be on the miracle, as it were. It shouldn't, the focus shouldn't necessarily be on the result of what Jesus has done for us. It should be on Jesus himself. He's the one who's excellent. He's the one who's perfect. He's the one that gets the praise. He's the one who gets the recognition. You see your life change. You see the miracles that God has done, what he's healed you from, where he's brought you, where he has you, how he's using you. That's not the focus. That's just the result of the fact that Jesus is awesome. So Jesus gets the praise. Now, here's the, here's the crazy thing. Here's the really crazy thing. These people who know nothing about Jesus' religious background, they're not Jews by all accounts. They don't know anything about the law of God. They don't know the prophets. They haven't read those things. But the things that they recognize about Jesus and what he has done is an exact quotation of Isaiah 35.5. When they say here in Mark 7, chapter 37, he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. They're quoting Isaiah 35.5, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Why is that important? Because in our witness to who Jesus is, one of the things that we can interact with people on is to say, listen, I know you may not know Jesus yet, but do you realize that you're in Scripture? That even people who are unbelievers, who are going to be swayed by the testimony of Jesus, they already appear in Scripture. They're already a part of the story. And I'm not sure if we get that all the time. That like we don't enter into the story of Jesus in terms of God's narrative of his salvation throughout the history of the world at the point that we believe in Jesus. We enter into the story the day that we're born. And God's desire in his heart from us from that day forward is to bring us into relationship with him. And so even these people who didn't know anything about God, they're quoting scripture without even realizing it because what they're seeing is the truth of who Jesus is no matter when or where or how you encounter him. Jesus' truth is always true. And so for us, as, as we move into a, a season of perhaps looking for how God is going to grow us as a fellowship, my prayer is, is that we would be seeing more and more our testimony in terms of handing out cards, inviting people, praying for people, not from the perspective of, hey, come join us and look how great the thing is that we're doing, but simply, simply to say, look at how great Jesus is. Look at what Jesus does. One way to do that is to come and see his people gathered together and how it is that we're experiencing the goodness of God. But like, look at Jesus, look at how good he is and find yourself in his story. Find yourself in, in the reality that God desires every person to come to repentance and the knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what we have to share with people is that, is that request to say, come, come and see Jesus. 
Come and see how good he is and how perfect he is and how he does everything well. Because here's the thing. If we put ourselves in that position, come and look at how great our church service is and look at the place that we're meeting now and listen to the music and all these things. Here's the reality. We're going to disappoint people. I think we got to get comfortable with that fact that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who are not Jesus, that's all of us, we're going to disappoint people. I learned that lesson a long time ago, and I live with that on a daily basis. Anybody puts their hope in me, sorry, you're going to be disappointed real quick. And if you're thinking that the thing that we're doing is excellent and it's awesome and it's great, at some point it's going to disappoint you because it's going to change. It's going to change. It's not going to be the thing that you liked last week. It's going to be something different. I've said it a million times, but how is it that a group of people, any number of group of people could sit in a room like this and agree on something and say, we're unified. And in fact, we're so unified, we treat each other like family. We're like brothers and sisters. How is it that we can do that when we can't agree on the color to put on the walls or how loud the music should be or which songs we should sing or who's the one who gets like, or what time services? Like, if we can't agree on those things, how is it that we can call ourselves unified? Jesus and Jesus alone. That's how we're unified. That's how we get together and be like, man, all the other messy stuff that goes on, it's going to come and go. But Jesus is the same. He's the one who's excellent. He's the one who's showing us how to go to places where he hasn't been yet. He's the one showing us how to welcome people that maybe on the surface look messy and and church sort of is like, out of place and weird sometimes because there's people here who don't know that they're not supposed to say something during, during service, right? Or they're like thinking there's a snack up at the front, right? And somebody's got to go, no, 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 no. That's really important at the end of the service, right? I've had that. Little kids going, bread. I'm like, whoa. But that's okay, man. To come and to be messy and, and to have to help people along the way, that's the definition of discipleship, man. Helping people along the way to understand who Jesus is. If he's excellent, if he does all things well, perfectly, beautifully, that's the lesson for us, specifically in these stories, where he went and who he was ministering to. I pray that as we enter into this season of like, man, things are changing, but, but it's because we really have that sense of God's spirit moving us for his kingdom to grow, for people to come to know Jesus, not just change churches, not just switch locations, but for people to come to know Jesus. One by one, or 2,000 by 2,000. We see it both ways in scripture. That's one of the hardest things for me, is to look at it and go, man, uh, I'd like to keep this really organized. I'd like to keep this really uh, sort of in control. If we could like sort of get the growth, but have it happen like really systematically, that would be awesome. We don't get to make those requests. Just doesn't happen that way. In the book of Acts, man, Peter gets up, proclaims the gospel, talks about Jesus, 2,000 people get added to the church in that day. Can it happen? It has to be able to happen. It happened in Scripture. So we don't get to judge those things. But we do get to prepare to open our arms and our hearts to the fact that it may not look the way that we think it should look. But because Jesus shows that it's excellent to do that, we should do that as well. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged in that and that our eyes and our ears and our, and our minds would be open to be prepared for these things.